Good morning. We are back. I mean, we had only really not been in a letter. Well, Mike preached all of Leviticus last week, but we're back in a letter. We're in the letter of Hebrews, which is in the Bible. There's 66 letters in the Bible. We are going to go through the book of Hebrews, not the entire letter today. We're going to spend the next few months going through the book of Hebrews. But the first question I have for you is, who's excited that there's no barbecue in the worship center today? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Mike. Now, Hebrews, this letter, is a bit of a controversial letter. Not necessarily because of the content. I guess there are a few things that kind of stick out that are difficult for some people to understand. It's very in line with the rest of Scripture. But the reason that it's controversial is because of the author. For quite a while, this letter was attributed to the Apostle Paul. And while its content is very in line with Paul's epistles, which are known as the letters to the church, the use of various words, the language and grammar that is used throughout this letter does not sound like or read very similar to Paul. So with that, the authorship has been in question for hundreds of years, and for some it becomes an excuse why to not listen to this letter or a reason to disregard this letter. But I believe as we study this letter, you will find it is very obvious why this letter, as we refer to the author as the writer of Hebrews, was included in what we know as Scripture, the Bible. 66 different letters or books that make up what we know as the Bible, or as we refer to it often, the Word of God. But the purpose and point of the book of Hebrews was not, guess the writer. That's not the goal. That's not what we're going to spend our time doing. The Holy Spirit is the one who wrote it using people that are messed up, like you and I. But instead, it is to show us how mankind, since the fall, in the garden, the world has been in need of a better Adam, a better Abraham, a better Isaac, a better Moses, a better Joshua. And why make such a big deal about this in this letter by the unknown writer whose literature has been included in Scripture? Because the Jewish Christians, in the context in which this letter is being written of the day, were, as some in Christian culture might call, backsliding. Backsliding. And not like the moral police of the Christian church of the 90s, but more they were forgetting what they believed in the first place and were losing faith that Christ was the culmination of the Hebrew law, completed once and for all. And so the writer of Hebrews will point us to the fact that Jesus is greater than, hence the name of the series, and all of these mentioned things, but also that the Hebrew law and traditions were to point to our need for a Savior, or, and also who that Savior would be. And so as we begin Hebrews, I want you to think through what the Holy Spirit was communicating specifically to these first century Jewish Christians, and how that applies and gives us confidence today in our belief and faith in a risen Jesus Christ from the grave. I'm so excited to begin this letter. You guys have no idea, all right? So I'm going to give you my main point. It kind of goes along with the name of the sermon. Jesus is prophet, priest, king, and son. Jesus is prophet, priest, king, and son. Not just one of those, but all of those things. And that's something I want us to fixate on today as we study the scriptures and we'll see how the scripture points that out. So let's begin in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. 
This writer points to how their ancestors, the Jews, had been spoken to through prophets, speaking on behalf of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to say things that in some cases they perhaps did not exactly understand what they were saying, but were foreshadowing of who was to come, the Messiah. And the writer points out that God used this way of communication through the prophets to give mankind at the time an explanation of God and his will. And we know this, if you're familiar with the Bible, we know this as the Old Testament. And the New Testament, which is, starts in Matthew, the New Testament points back to how God used the prophets to reveal God's will and his character and the foreshadowing of a savior. Peter, the apostle, he puts it this way in his letter. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 10, concerning this salvation, the gospel, grace in Jesus Christ, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. And how did the prophets come up with this? Were these just people that were extra spiritual, that said spiritual things, and people started to retweet their tweets? No. Peter addresses how they understood this and how they came up with this in a second letter. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, even though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We say this often, but the Word of God reveals the will of God written by the Spirit of God. And this is where we get this. Now, while the authors will color in some of what is said contextually as we read the Bible, we ought to remember that the Word of God, the Bible, the, the one in the pew, the one on your phone, but the written Word is living and active. It is written by the same Spirit, according to Romans, that raised Jesus from the dead. And it was not stagnant or imagined in some boardroom, but instead guided by the Spirit of God, revealing who God is in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And it's revealed from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation and everything in between. And so these prophets looked ahead and they made known of what was to come as the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, guided them in what they said and what they wrote. And then comes Jesus. woo -hoo! And does he do away with what was written? No, absolutely not. He fulfills what was written. Why? Because no prophet, no priest, no king, or person could do it themselves. Only the Christ, the king, the priest, the prophet, could fulfill what was written. Not because he strived to do it hard and he was going to try really hard to do it, but because all of the things written in the Old Testament were about him and they were preparing the way for him. Jesus says in the most popular sermon to most, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills the prophecies foretold. He lived out the law perfectly and was spoken about by God through the prophets hundreds and in some cases a thousand years prior to his arrival in which we celebrate at Christmas. 
And so Paul explains the entirety of the word of God represented in the prophets who symbolize and author much of the Old Testament. Prophets symbolize the Old Testament and the apostles who, according to the New Testament, symbolize the New Testament. So here's what he says, Paul, to the church in Ephesus. He says it this way in Ephesians 2. Consequently, you, believers in Ephesus, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. These prophets were used by God to explain God's will to a people who were in need of salvation, not through their bloodline, but shed blood on a cross, a perfect lamb, a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And the New Testament writers understood after Jesus' death and resurrection that Jesus was the fulfillment of what the prophets prophesied. Now, while prophecies were not all that the Old Testament and prophets taught, I think the fact that there are anywhere from 400 to 600 verses in the Old Testament that allude to or prophesy specifically about Jesus is a really big deal. And these are not prophecies that you kind of, you have to like squint your eyes and look at one of those things from the 90s where if you cross your eyes, a thing jumps out at you. That's not what we're talking about. What are those called? Okay. I'll take your word for it. See, these aren't things you have to try really hard to find Jesus. You just have to look for him. Because they were so blatant. When Jesus came to earth through the incarnation of being born of the Holy Spirit and a virgin, people were already seeing the parallels from what had been written in the Old Testament. So let me explain a few. And I'm going to probably get a little excited because I'm, I'm explaining the really easy ones, all right? But there's so many more. And these might be helpful for you if you've signed up for a community group. It's a nice segue. Sign up for a community group. Last opportunity you have is this week because we start this week. But if you're in a community group and you want to take a picture of the references that I'm going to share, I'm only going to share the Old Testament part. I'm not going to share where it was fulfilled in the New Testament, mostly because I'm assuming that most of you already kind of have a gauge for what it says in the New Testament. But if you don't, this is a great opportunity to bring it up in a community group or with someone that you're connected to who knows God's word. So here we go. Take a picture if you choose to. Jesus is the greater Adam, Genesis 2 and 3. Jesus is the Passover lamb, Exodus 12, 1 through 11. The serpent on the pole who saved the Israelites who were poisoned by the snake represent those who look to Jesus on the cross, Numbers 21, 8 through 9. Jonah was in the belly of a what? Was not a whale, it was a fish, all right? Doesn't say well, just saying. And we taught that like, I don't know, four years ago, but yeah. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. Jesus laid lifeless in the tomb for three days and then rose from the dead, Jonah 1, 17. God promised Abraham what the whole world would be blessed through, his descendants, Jesus is Abraham's descendant and that blessing, Genesis 12, 3. Moses promised that God would atone for his people. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is that atonement, Deuteronomy 32, 43. David said, God would not abandon him to the grave. Check it. Jesus rose from the grave. What? Psalm 16, 9 through 10. Psalm 30, verse 3. Psalm 86, 13. 
The psalmist says the stone builders reject, uh, I'm sorry, the psalmist says the stone the builders will reject will become the cornerstone. Jesus was rejected by the Jewish leaders, and he is the basis of God's salvation. Psalm 118, 22 through 23. The Psalms say that the Lord will redeem Israel from her sins. Jesus is that redemption. Psalm 130, 7 through 8. God told Isaiah the people would not understand what he was saying. Jesus used parables to keep casual observers from understanding his teaching. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. God promised that a virgin would conceive. Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived, Isaiah 7, 14. God promised a time that the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute would be healed. Jesus healed each type of disability, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. The suffering servant, the suffering servant's sacrifice offers forgiveness of sins. Jesus' sacrifice offers forgiveness for our sins, Isaiah 53, 11. God promised a new covenant, and Jesus did the work of that new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. There are so many more, church, and I could do this all day. That's not my last Marvel reference, but the point is that Jesus was not accidental or barely fulfilled anything that was written. Jesus is the word, and he fulfills what has been written to a T. And the writer of Hebrews points out that in the past, God spoke through the prophets who spoke of God and their words when inspired by the Holy Spirit were documented and included in the Old Testament and reveals God's rescue plan for his people, which came through a promised savior. That was verse one. Let's get to verse two. Verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. But in these last days, okay, when I read that, I'm assuming probably many of you as well, when we read in the last days, we are so fixated on the things maybe we've heard in culture about, well, you know, Jesus is coming back, and we figured it out, and there's a countdown, and the Bible says the only person who knows when Jesus is coming back is God. That's it. So we are not the planning committee, we are the welcoming committee. But he says in the last days that he spoke through his son. Now, these people, when they were hearing this and they heard Paul talk about the last days and they heard the writer of Hebrews talk about the last days, they thought he was like coming back like that week. And 2,000 years later, they're still waiting. Now, here's the thing about in the last days. This was the writer of Hebrews. This was God, the Holy Spirit, speaking and breaking time in half. This is how God communicated before Jesus. He used prophets, and now he communicates through his son. And once Jesus came to his creation, the last days began. Did you know you're in the last days? I don't sound weird saying that if you look at it in the context of the reality that God doesn't need to speak through anyone else but his son now. And he is the fulfillment. And so we broke time in half, and there will never need to be Revelation 2, or, or us, 2 Revelation, if you're a British. Never will it have to be that. Jesus is it, and he inaugurated the new and greater way. And God communicates, not just in Jesus speaking, but in sending his son to be salvation for us. So 
Let's go back to the lack of author addressing himself, because as we start this letter, there's nowhere in this letter that he's like, oh, hey, my name's Apollos or whomever. He doesn't address himself. And let me just say this. Writers in this context had a sense of modesty to not necessarily focus on who they were, similar to the letter we just studied in 1 John, where John never actually states that he is the writer of it necessarily. He doesn't begin with, hey, it's John, y'all know me. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, or the gospel according to John. And I'll say this, I think the author's intent by omitting his name was, as we have and will read, is to put Jesus and Jesus alone on display, rather than himself. Because if you haven't been aware yet from God's word, or maybe even just being here today, or if you've been here a while, here's what we're about. Jesus, that's what we're about up in here, up in here. It's all about Jesus, and he is the heir of all things, and it is for him and through him and by him, the son, Jesus, was appointed Again, heir of all things. We do not know when this appointment came to be. Was it before time began? Maybe. Was it at his incarnation when he was born of the Holy Spirit and a virgin? Maybe. Was it right before his ascension? Maybe. But he is heir of all things, and an heir is one who is granted what the Father's will stipulates. And we know that Jesus has been given all authority. I'm not making this up. He says this himself. In Matthew 28, we're very familiar with these words. Jesus came to them, the disciples, and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's making himself equal with the Father. And so God created the universe through Jesus, which we know from the creation account in Genesis 1. Some believe that the New Testament never speaks about creation at all. And yet here, and in a very similar passage, God attributes to Jesus his activity in creation. Colossians 1, 16, Paul writes, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. It's almost like the Bible makes it about Jesus. And so similar to the passage in Colossians, the writer of Hebrews will put on display just how important and majestic the Son is. Check this out, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, because he's a priest, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is the radiance of God's glory. Man, that is a beautiful idea. Jesus is God, and he embodies the beauty and the majesty and the glory as the moon reflects the light of the sun, and we see the moon from earth. The glory and radiance of God reflects off of the sun, S-O-N. And we see the sun, the light of the world, God's radiance and glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the writer says, Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. While this is incomplete, the statement I'm about to say to you is incomplete. This is where I often point out that Jesus is God with skin. And so we need to figure out, if we need to figure out what God is like, we look to Jesus and we look to his word. 
This is so similar to the rest of Colossians. Uh, that's short passage. In verse 15, Paul says, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the exact representation, the image of the invisible God, the photograph of God. And Paul says, the firstborn over all creation. Hear me. This does not mean Jesus was created. That was Adam. He was not the first one created. He was not created. Adam was the first one created. Jesus has always been. The firstborn has to do with status and his being the heir of all things. And Paul goes on after saying that all things have been created by and for and through him. And then he says this in verse 17 of Colossians 1. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, he might have supremacy. This might be my favorite verse. I say that about a lot of verses. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. My note says rant about how much you love Jesus. So here you go. I love Jesus. And I am a messed up individual. And I think things I shouldn't. I have said things I shouldn't. I've done things I shouldn't. And I have a God that in his grace and mercy has counted me his son. He's adopted me into his family. And he didn't just know what I did in the past. He knows what I do currently and he knows what I'll do in the future. And he loves me in spite of me. That's a God I want to worship. That's a God I want to love. That's a God that I am so excited to read a verse where it says, he, he, how did he put it? Verse for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God. <laughs> so here's my ask of you. If you're kicking the tires of Christianity, if you're kicking the tires of this church thing, just know we make it about Jesus and Jesus alone. We speak about Jesus, we point people to Jesus, we worship Jesus. Now, we believe Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, and Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And so we spend our time pointing people to the work and the death and the resurrection because my God is not dead. He is alive. Amen, church? All right, that's enough. Verse four. We're almost done. <laughs> Never trust a pastor when he says that. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So I was talking with some of the people before the service, and Mike and I were praying, and Mike says, oh man, four verses, that's, that's you know, not very much. And yeah, actually, I'm not even going to really teach this verse. I'm going to punt to next week, just so you know, because next week we're going to spend a lot more time in angels and why the writer of Hebrews points out how much greater Jesus is than the angels. But here's the point I want to point back to. Jesus is prophet. He is priest. He is king. And he is the son. And maybe you're new to church. Not just this church. Maybe you're new to the idea of church. Maybe you are new to the idea of God. Especially in three persons. One God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And here's the crazy thing about the Trinity. One God in perfect relationship within himself. 
But let me give you a basic rundown of what this book is and what it is. And, and even for those of you who would consider yourselves mature, I think some of this stuff, as I found this quote, I, I actually didn't think of some of the things that were written here. And here is why the Bible is so important and it points to Jesus. The Bible is the story of human history and God's work in it. The most significant event in human history is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story of this event permeates the text of Scripture. The creation account shows God's sovereignty over his creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, that's Genesis 3, shows us why we need a Savior. The history of Israel shows two significant things. One, the historical context of the coming of the Son of God incarnate. And two, humanity's inability to save itself through its own works. Thus, we need a Savior. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, tell the story of Jesus the Savior on earth. And much of the rest of the New Testament, the epistles or the letters to the church, teach about how to live in this age in light of Jesus' work on our behalf. The prophecies of the Bible, which we've talked about at length, particularly in Daniel and the book of Revelation, but also elsewhere, show that Jesus is Savior, is saving us to an eternal paradise and from an eternal damnation in hell. The story of Jesus saturates the meta-narrative of the Bible and prophecies of his first advent are found throughout the Old Testament. Allusions to him also come up in microwaves as many people and events hint at the work Jesus would accomplish. So I generally tend, as I'm concluding a sermon, I generally tend to uh, wrestle with how I'm going to close. I don't exactly know how I'm going to close a sermon most times, and then Sunday morning comes, and I kind of look at what I'm doing, and then sometimes I just, you know, I'm, a, I'm abrupt. All right, let's pray, right? <laughs> sometimes that's how I end a sermon. And sometimes I end with a story. And sometimes I attempt to connect back all that has been said to a final point or a re-explanation of the points that we've already been talking about. And my original plan was to spoil the first three phases of what we know as the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, by explaining how the universe began in 2008 when Iron Man 1 came out and RDJ, Robert Downey Jr., Tony Stark was the character he played, he told everyone he used these words, I am Iron Man. And how the last movie in phase three, well, the second to last movie in phase three, which was Endgame, also ended the same way. We have a picture. It ended the same way with Tony Stark saving the universe by sacrificing himself and snapping Thanos and his army out of existence and bringing back half of creation who had been snapped away in Avengers Infinity War. Wait, I guess I did just spoil it. Sorry. You've had almost five years to watch Endgame. I do not feel bad, plus a pandemic, and it's on Disney+, Plus. so sorry, not sorry. But here is what I realized as I was putting together this message and have been reading obsessively in the book of Hebrews as of late. The audience that the writer was writing to was backsliding. And as I teased at the beginning of the sermon, they were backsliding. Their backsliding had more to do with forgetting and perhaps not ever really understanding and believing that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king, the son, 
they probably, like the church in 2024, had forgotten all about the resurrection of Jesus. They had probably forgotten about the mind-blowing continuity of the Hebrew scriptures and how they had pointed to Jesus before anyone knew who Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophecies brought on by the Old Testament paint a very vivid picture of the Messiah, the Christ who would come, and he did. And for many people in different religions, because of pride, they refuse to believe that Jesus is what the Old Testament wrote about. And for many people today, they refuse the claims of Christ and the history of his life and resurrection, maybe because of pride, maybe because they don't, just don't know. And honestly, it'd be really easy to kind of blame the church. Maybe not the true church. We're, we're not the true church in and of ourselves. We are part of the true church. But many people over many hundreds of years who have claimed allegiance to Jesus have unintentionally or perhaps intentionally exalted themselves. They've exalted their brand. They've exalted their denomination or even their church above Christ, who according to Paul, Jesus is the head of that church. It's subtle. It's usually not very obvious, but there is a sense of something being off when what we communicate points people to join our religion or become a better version of themselves rather than enter into an eternal relationship with God through Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf. And God says that when you trust Jesus, you become his child. You are adopted into his family through the offer of grace received by faith, and then you're included in the body, the church, in which Jesus is the head. Church, we don't want you to get it twisted. What we do here is not for our glory. It really isn't. It's not to make a name for ourselves or gain enough fame that we can then influence more people. Our call is to sacrifice ourselves for the gospel, to be unapologetically proclaiming the truth of God's saving grace through the person and work of Jesus as the only right way to stand before God forgiven based on his word. And honestly, that message generally is not received. It isn't popular because we, like most people, would rather work for it ourselves. We'd rather do it ourselves. And yet Jesus comes and he says, no, 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 I did it for you. I lived the life you couldn't. I died the death you should have. I physically rose from the dead, cementing that I am who I say that I am. And church, our goal, my goal those who teach you, those who lead you in community groups, the elders, our goal is to help you, if you have committed to Christ, to live your lives in lieu of the gospel, to view your priorities and dreams with the glory of God on display. And I think the more I've prayed about this, the more I think I'm not too far in right field, I think we, me, and many in church leadership have attempted to make disciples but not always of Jesus. We use the Bible. We use the word gospel. We use the church calendar to point us to be disciples of something or someone, but I'm not convinced that it's always Jesus. When Jesus said all authority in heaven and earth had been given to him, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, I honestly think, like most things, we have spent more time trying to get people dunked 
then we have immersing them in the truth of God's word, which reveals God's will and the person and work of God. And so we should make disciples of Jesus. We should make disciples of him through his word. He says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. This does not mean just the things that are said in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with red letters. See, Jesus is the Word. The entire Bible is Him. Jesus is everything. All of the Word has been created by, for, and through Him. So when we make disciples, let's not make disciples of us to bring us glory, to justify ourselves and our ministry. Let's make disciples of Jesus and let them be immersed in Him and His Word. I used to really appreciate it when people quoted me and what I say. And I, I appreciated it a little bit too much. And it's not bad to learn from others, but my attitude was, if I want to be really honest, I wanted glory and I wanted credit. You know what is better than someone quoting me? When they quote scripture. In context, even. When they quote the truth Maybe I had the opportunity, or maybe one of the leaders in this church have had the opportunity to study with you, but Jesus is the one who gets credit, and Jesus is the one who we are making disciples of. So I have a question for you. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you trusting him? Let me, let me ask that question another way. Are you under the authority and accountability of Jesus and his word? Just going to leave that question there. And if you're yet to really make a commitment, there's a card. You can fill that out. You can say, hey, I want to talk more about Jesus. You can come talk to one of the people that you see up here. You can talk to some of the elders. But let's end with this. Both an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage that connect all that we have been saying today. So worship team, come on up while I read this. Some of you may remember the story in Exodus. There is a burning bush where Moses goes to speak to God, and God says that he is on holy ground, so he should remove his sandals. God was speaking to Moses through this burning bush, and then says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he voiced his concern for the Israelites who had been brought into slavery in Egypt. So God had come to save his people out of slavery. And he told Moses that he would send him to go speak on his behalf to Pharaoh and that he would then lead the Israelites out of Egypt and to the promised land. But then Moses asked a pretty important question concerning who sent him. Here's what it says, Exodus 3. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is how God referred to himself. The I am. The I am has sent you. This was considered one of the most holy ways God refers to himself. And I, I, I'm, here's the segue. I always get a kick out of people who biblically, or who maybe don't read scripture, but who claim that Jesus never called himself God. Fast forward almost 1,500 years, and Jesus is speaking with a crowd of Jews and Jewish leaders about who he is, and then he's questioned about his authority, and Jesus says something so scandalous, 
so unbelievable in the context that I don't think we have a contextual equivalent to base it upon. But here are Jesus' words after he compares himself to Abraham and was questioned about his healing and confused for a demon-possessed man. Here's what he says, John 8, 58. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And then jump to 59. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. We say this a lot. Perhaps we say it so much it's lost on some of us, but it's all about Jesus, church. And that's what the scriptures teach. It's all about what he has accomplished. It's all about what he has done. And he has offered to us through his perfect life lived and his perfect record, a perfect sacrifice that we now get an opportunity to know, love, trust, and grow in Jesus. So church, here's my challenge to you. We have began this letter in Hebrews. You have heard me want, you've heard me, uh, a bunch of us say that we want to be a people who do not just listen to the word, but we are doers of the word. We become doers of the word. But isn't, this is not to justify ourselves. This isn't to make ourselves look better. God's perfect prophet, God's perfect priest, God's perfect king and God's perfect son, all found in one person, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, has saved those who have called upon his name as their righteousness. We, in turn, are offered the opportunity to be more and more Christ-like as we obey God at his word and love the son who died and rose again so that we could have life and life eternal. So that offer is on the table for each and every single one of you. And if you've already trusted him, the offer is to put into practice what his word says. And so we're going to respond in musical worship. We're going to sing. And I would encourage you to look at these lyrics because we chose songs with this passage in mind. And I would just invite you to do some work between you and God. And maybe just, maybe this is one of the first times you've prayed in a long time or ever, but would you just talk to God in your mind and let him start to kind of show you who he is through his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the rain. I thank you for, most importantly, your son. I thank you for the grace, the getting what we do not deserve in Jesus's perfect life lived and the sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead. God, may we live differently because we're under your authority and your word. May we live differently. May we want to put into practice what you're teaching us. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.